Professor Jim Peebles, welcome to Free Tanky Pod. Thank you. And first of all, congratulations to the Nobel Prize in Physics. It's wonderful. <laughs> Did you um, ever expect that such a abstract field of research would 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 uh, turn into a Nobel Prize? Well, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, you understand that uh, this phenomenon, so central to the whole theory of the evolving universe, the sea of radiation that mm. fills space, has already earned two Nobel Prizes. Mm. And uh, it's time for a third. <laughs> okay. So you expected it in a little bit. Yes. Sooner or later, yeah. I might explain that um, I had warning of this mm -hmm. from the fact that Perhaps you know there are sites on which you can bet money yeah. on outcomes. Yes. In particular, you can bet on who will be awarded the next Nobel Prize. Mm. And it's said that the uh, payoff, of course, depends on the amount of money wagered, that uh, the, the betting sites have pretty good accuracy. Mm -hmm. I can't explain it. But it means that my university keeps track of odds on its faculty members receiving prizes. Mm -hmm. So for the last two years, I've received a notice from our Department of Public Relations. Uh, we're ready to help with publicity if you need it. Okay. No explanation. But at, at this time of year, you do wonder. Of course. And so, in fact, it happened. And, you know, the university was all ready for this prize if it should be awarded mm. that very day an elaborate celebration through mm. the university. That's wonderful. Yeah. Could you explain to the listeners exactly what you received the prize for? What is the discovery or the work you ha did? Do you know, um, it, it was not specifically stated by the, by the Nobel people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm often asked, of which bit of research are you most proud? Mm -hmm. And it's rather like asking, which of your children do you like best? Mm. Okay. That's not a question I can answer. Of course. But of course I can. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm proud of many things. I'm proud, first, of the luck, the deep luck I had in entering a field that was dormant and being able to grow with it and to grow the field. So wonderful that as a postdoc, a very junior person, I got to know most of the people active in this subject. There were only a handful. Mm -hmm. And I got to introduce many concepts even rather elementary ones, because no one else was doing it. But, of course, the major contribution surely is the dark matter, which was forced on me by growing observational evidence. We could get into the details of that evidence that's discussed at great length in my book. Mm -hmm. But basically, uh, it was an ad hoc introduction of something ridiculous, matter that we can't observe, to solve a problem. How do we understand the universe in the way it's made? A little more in detail, uh, we have a sea of radiation that's remarkably smooth, and we have a distribution of matter that's wonderfully clumpy, mass concentrated in galaxies and clusters of galaxies mm. and superclusters. How did the matter get so clumpy while the radiation stayed so smooth? One could talk about the details, but the short answer is postulate dark matter that does not interact with matter or radiation. That allows the dark matter to grow without disturbing the radiation very much, aside from gravity. Mm -hmm. 
that solved the problem of why the, radi- the sea of radiation is so smooth. Isn't it, that often the case that you postulate something uh, before you have any empirical evidence for it? I like the Higgs how, particle, for mm, example. Yes, like the Higgs particle. Well, well, with the Higgs particle, you had a theory that was very well defined, yeah. and there ought to be that Higgs. Yeah. It was much less tight uh, an argument for the dark matter, okay. but it's basically the same thing. I like the old expression, save the phenomenon, which, of course, means not that you save the phenomenon, but rather that you invent theories that don't violate what's known. Mm. Don't save the phenomenon. And this was a case of saving the phenomenon. That's no guarantee that I'm saving it in the right way, of of course, but it turned out to be so. Okay, I see. And dark matter, <clears throat> as I understand it, and dark energy is what most of the universe consists of. It's, isn't that ironic? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's very weird in a way. Well, I guess so, although, of course, the universe surely isn't constructed for our benefit. No. We no. take it as it comes. Yeah. And um, you understand that dark energy is rather an over-optimistic term. We have the term Einstein introduced back in 1917, Uh, cosmological constant. It's a term that he soon came to despise because it destroyed the logical simplicity of his theory. When I was a student, uh, everyone knew that the the cosmological constant is not there. It's just absurd. You can find that in very good books on, on physics. But yet we need it. We give it a new name, dark energy. That hasn't solved any problems. No. Is that the same thing as Einstein's? Uh, yes, uh, that's all it is. Uh-huh. Okay. It is. Now, of course, uh, it's very possible that dark energy is more than Einstein's cosmological constant. <clears throat> it's very possible that the constant isn't a constant, but rather a variable. Mm. Uh, it's a concept I introduced with uh, my colleague Barrett Ratra back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Again, we were trying to save the phenomenon. Again, there was no guarantee that it's the case, that the cosmological constant should vary. We still don't know whether that's so, but it's just one of the tantalizing puzzles. What is the nature of this cosmological constant? Is it really a constant of nature? And if it is, why does it have such a distinctly odd value? Mm. Should I? Maybe I could explain briefly that um, dimensional analysis... You can make combinations of parameters that sound interesting. For example, we have Hubble's constant, which is the relation of proportionality between recession velocity and distance. Mm -hmm. The reciprocal of that is a a time. It's roughly the time for the size of the universe to double. You immediately want to compare that time to the ages of stars and and, uh, the Earth. Mm -hmm. They're similar. That all alone is rather a striking phenomenon. Why should that constant of proportionality bear some relation to the evolution of stars? Well, of course it should if we are really in a universe that's expanding. You could have asked, isn't this redshift phenomenon simply tired light? What does it have to do with expansion? Not necessarily anything. The fact that the expansion time and stellar evolution times are similar is by no means by itself any definite evidence of anything, but it is a fascinating clue. 
you can make another dimensional analysis argument to get from gravity and Hubble's constant of mass density. Already in the 1930s, people knew that the mass density in galaxies is roughly the same as that characteristic mass density you get out of gravity and the notion of an expanding universe. Mm -hmm. Again, very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Then you throw in quantum physics. And from quantum mechanics, which is characterized by Planck's constant, mm. and gravity physics characterized by Newton's constant, you can get a mass density, which has a ridiculous value. It's just astoundingly ugly. <laughs> okay. The dark energy can be thought of as a characteristic mass density determined by gravity and quantum mechanics, except the value is so absurdly different from the natural value you get out of those two constants of nature. Mm -hmm. Wow, there's something really fascinating going on of which we have no idea. But could you, would you say that the relation between dark energy and dark matter is the same as between normal energy and normal matter? Well, it, it's a good question. Uh, we have no idea. Okay, we don't uh, know that. Yeah, we don't know that. So the, 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 the table is clear, clean, mm. on dark matter and dark energy. We only know things that it can't do. Uh. It, it can't interact very strongly with ordinary matter. It can't interact with itself strongly enough to make dark stars, because if there were dark stars, we'd notice them by their gravity. Uh -huh. So we have constraints. This dark matter and dark energy can't be too different from the simple versions that are in the standard theory. In the standard theory, dark energy is a constant. It's, cos it's Einstein's cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. Dark matter <clears throat> is a gas of particles that just move about under the influence only of gravity. It's the simplest possible thing you can do. So, of course, when I introduced <clears throat> dark matter, <clears throat> I made the introduction as simple as possible, not because I thought that the universe is really as simple as possible, but because you want to make something simple when all you're doing is saving the phenomenon. Mm. So I made it simple. Uh, aside from the in introduction of the cosmological constant, um, which I introduced in, 70, in 84 after the dark matter in 82 for reasons we could discuss, Things haven't changed. To my immense amazement, you know, I went through two, well, I have at times played the role of Cassandra to my colleagues. <laughs> In the case of dark matter, uh, I was disconcerted by the enthusiasm with which dark matter was adopted. Wait, I said, to myself, and I think also to colleagues, wait, I just made that up. Why are you paying any particular attention to it? And you know, I could make up another model that would save the phenomenon equally well. Why aren't you paying attention to it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's more complicated. Mm -hmm. Occam's razor. Uh, yes, although I don't think Occam's razor is a guarantee of success by any means. No, that's true, of course. Uh, and, and so I, I, I should say... I felt a little offended by the enthusiasm for the adoption of this one idea. Of course, it's a good, good strategy in science to adopt one idea and then trace it down as hard as ever you can until you see that it fails. Uh, what's your theory of why 
that idea was created so much enthusiasm and none other. Simplicity. Okay, so that is the thing. Which is interesting because that says that scientists uh, have some kind of beauty standard when it yes. comes to theories, and right? Often that's pure wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. The universe is not necessarily simple. And or think, beautiful. Or beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, our, our standards of beauty are very flexible. That's so true. It, <laughs> that's if true. it works, it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, true. And, you know, the uh, cosmological constant is particularly fascinating for the fact that it's ugly. Mm-hmm. No one wanted it. <laughs> not even, not even Einstein. Certainly not Einstein. No, no. Not Wolfgang Pauli, not, not Landau Lischitz. The, the authorities when I was a student were very clear. I think it's funny. It reminds me of Fred Hoyle when he yes. invites the Big Bang uh, concept uh, because he thinks it's ridiculous. He calls it the Big Bang. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, he is a complicated case, a brilliant scientist. Yeah. But with with I only had I only had limited discussions with him. But what seemed to me to be very clear is that he was skeptical that cosmology could ever be empirically established. Mm. The scales are just too big. Instead, he insisted to me, you need philosophy. And a short way of saying that is you want something beautiful. The steady-state theory that he defended, you know, is a remarkably elegant theory. Yeah. Just economically simple, yet fit many facts at the time. And it did satisfy a great need it was an alternative to more conventional ideas based on Einstein's general relativity theory. And that alternative so infuriated some astronomers that they worked very hard to disprove the steady-state theory mm. to the great benefit of the subject. Yeah. You drive the research. But don't you also think that Fred Hoyle, he didn't like the Big Bang Theory because it was created by a Jesuit priest and he, he <laughs> thought it was religious in a way? I don't know. Uh, I do wish Fred hadn't been quite so brutal in his taunting of uh, Georges Lemaitre, who was a brilliant physicist. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, yeah. Uh, I would say that in 1930, he understood general relativity theory better than Einstein. Oh, oh that's... Yes. Uh, he was great. That's remarkable. Uh, he was also a retiring person, and I don't think he liked the brilliant jabs he got from the Cambridge group. <laughs> okay. um, Did you meet Fred Hoyle? Uh, yes, on a few occasions. Oh, okay. I could never persuade him that we might be approaching an empirically based, observationally based cosmology. Mm. He was convinced, no, you'll never get there. Mm. You'll, have to, you'll have to invent something that That's fits the phenomenon. You should never say never. <laughs> uh, well, I have on occasion said never, and I've been wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> But uh, I have often wondered why he didn't respond to the growing evidence that we were establishing an empirically well-established subject. He instead uh, evolved his steady-state theory into the quasi-steady-state theory. It was not a happy ending, mm. as far as I could see. Mm. It was a little bit desperate. Yes. Now, mm. why, why wouldn't he give in. Uh, I find it very easy to surrender to the facts. But I mean, Einstein never accepted the quantum theory, so... Uh, well, you know, I think that's not quite fair to put okay. it that way. He very systematically emphasized that quantum mechanics is beautifully successful. It's mm. a wonderful theory. It works beautifully well. But surely, it is an approximation to a deeper theory. Yeah. 
And we all agree on that. Mm. But he wanted a deeper theory that's causal. Yeah, yeah. No dice playing. No, exactly. And uh, it's hard to blame him for that. Uh, We have been forced in quantum mechanics into a very curious box, isn't that right, where we have probability entering. Yeah, that is weird. That is is weird. weird. Uh, and and it's very hard to to sort of reconcile that with your intuitions <coughs> of reality. <coughs> Although uh, intuition is based on what we experience, don't we experience all sorts of accidents and, and serendipitous remarks? And mm. our daily existence is not all that causal, wouldn't mm. you say? So well, why did people develop develop this notion that underlying physics is strongly causal and regular and? But I mean, our daily lives are are in practice. We we can't see the causal relations always, but there are. I think I think that we think that there are theoretically causal relations beneath the. But uh, in quantum physics, it's not. I've often wondered what, what about that. Um, why? didn't Newton feel that there is a strictly there are lawful there are lawful theories underlying our daily experience when our daily experience is so chaotic why Mm. the faith in simplicity underlying complexity Mm. Uh, I've never understood quite why he was so correct in thinking that there are that physics is a lawful Enterprise. Don't you think it could be because that we have a sort of reminiscence, is it called in English, from theology? I mean, this historical view that there is an intelligent creator and therefore it must be some kind of It must be done in a a lawful way. There must be laws of nature. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And after all, if you got it from a theological point of view... The creator is, I suppose, uh, allowed to break those laws. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you believe uh, in miracles, know. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I must ask you about this because this is interesting. I mean, <clears throat> you <clears throat> devoted your whole life to cosmology. How has that affected you on a deeply personal, existential level? I mean, <clears throat> do you see? Do you have a view like Einstein of a Spinoza um, view of some kind of God, or or would you say that you're an atheist, or or how do you? Naturalist, or how do you define an interesting problem? Um, as a youth, I was exposed to religion. Mm. I found it terribly boring. Mm. It just never grabbed me. Mm. But when I saw my father sawing boards, I was immediately grabbed. Uh, somehow, the physical aspect grabbed me far much much further mm. than than the religious aspects. Mm. Uh, I love. Physics, in part because one can marry careful experiments with laws of physics and see the two so tightly interrelated. Uh, Religion, I just don't think about it. It doesn't grab me. Mm. It doesn't offend me. Mm. It's just something I don't do. I see. There it is. But you, I, I guess you, you see what religion is doing in the world right now. No, I'm not so sure I'm happy with that. No. But we, we call Newton. Newton. Newton believed in religion very strongly. Yeah. He had a deus ex, ex machina, yeah. and yet he had laid down laws of nature that are spectacularly accurate. As he was himself able to check, he had these laws of nature that are just there, and yet he had a creator 
who I suppose is allowed to bend the laws of nature. I don't know. I've never understood that. No, no. But I mean, just a, a country like your own country, where a lot of people don't even believe in the evolution. It's startling, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Uh, and it's very worrying. It is very worrying. Um, many things worry us, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, this will pass, I hope. <laughs> I hope. Yes. But you did ask me about how my science has affected my normal life. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. I love to go into the lab and write, calculate, think, read. But when I go home, I love to sit in the garden and read the newspaper, mm. go for a walk. I don't see a strong connection between my research and my casual life outside research. Mm -hmm. I think I spend more time working than is normal. If nothing is happening at home, I may just walk into the lab and mm. do a little calculating. I'm, I often work weekends mm -hmm. because I enjoy it. But has it affected my worldview? I can't tell. Though, as I remarked, I don't get excited about religion. It's just not something I think about. Mm. And the fact that uh, there is enormous numbers of planets around stars. And, you know, you pause to consider that. On those planets, all sorts of wonderful things will be happening. And pause to consider, we, the human race, will never get to see what's happening on all those planets. Mm. It's sad, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know if the word is sad or, or amazing or wonderful, <laughs> but there it is. Mm. The limitations, uh, our limitations are so, so, so tight, so extreme. Mm. Yet it's amazing mm. that we can make a theory of how the universe is evolving, and that we can make a very strong case that we have it about right. Mm. It is amazing. Tell me, how did your interest in physics start? I mean, when you were a child, what happened? How, who affected you? I was a directionless youth. I, I didn't, I, I'm sure I was not a good student, unsatisfactory, because in school I could easily answer the questions, but I wouldn't do the homework. Mm. Um, I, I would make, uh, I would disturb the class. Uh, <laughs> just just a, a, a brat. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I got to university, and uh, I discovered there I love physics. Mm. I guess I... Well, I could have known earlier, if I'd ever thought of it, that I love physics. In particular, a memory that sticks with me is, as a child who could just barely read, reading in one of my older sister's school books an account of a compound pulley. You know, compound pulleys, are, they're neat. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're neat. And I, I remember still thinking, gee, that's neat. Mm -hmm. I didn't do anything with it, but... Such experiences during my youth that I recall made me see that I love physics, made me in respect, in retrospect, recognize that I love physics, although I didn't know there was such a subject until I got to university. What did your mother and father do? Well, my father worked in the, I grew up in Manitoba in Canada. It's on the boundary of the Great Prairies. It's mm -hmm. a place where the wheat is collected and then shipped off, where the, and my father worked at the grain exchange, as it was called, where the wheat was brought in, it was sold, it was shipped. Mm. Uh, he kept track of the shipping. My mother, a homemaker. Mm. 
We had a not a particularly academically rich life. I was mm. the first in my family to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, my sister, Audrey, very bright, she became a teacher, which she loved. Normal school is what we had then. Normal school is a teacher's college. Mm. And uh, she went there into teaching. I drifted off to the university. I'm not sure why. So it wasn't your parents, really, who influenced no. you, no? They, I don't remember them ever saying, you ought to go to college. I, they would never have said, you shouldn't go to college. I just went. It was a very fortunate situation then that I summer jobs would earn me enough money that I could pay for tuition for mm -hmm. the university. So I just went. I stayed at home, so I had very few expenses aside from tuition, a little food during the day. And mm -hmm. uh, I went at first without really thinking why, <laughs> but then increasingly because I loved it. Yeah. It was intellectually stimulating for you. Yes. I would mm -hmm. never have used the word intellectually, okay. but it was. <laughs> okay. I understand. Now, but it's so interesting to hear, I mean, what, what kind of environments starts a child like that. Yes, so. yes. And sometimes you don't know, of course. Sometimes you don't know, and so I can't pass along any advice to a parent. No, How do you train your children? I think the answer is you don't train your children. Yeah, maybe. Let their minds wander. Let them yeah. let them think. I try to do that. I have a 10-year-old boy at home, and uh, I, I, I sometimes take him out when it's a, a star-clear night, mm -hmm. and we lay down on the ground, and I tell him, Imagine now that you're looking downwards instead of <laughs> upwards, and you get some kind of uh, existential. It's a very special mm. feeling if you mm. think like that. <laughs> he My likes parents it. Never did that. Okay. Um, we were a relaxed family, yeah. but never an emphasis on education. Uh -huh. We yeah. were all self-motivated. Yeah. I have a close friend in America who you might know of, uh, Dog Hofstadter. It's that was the, the son of the physicist Hofstadter. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Robert Hofstadter was his father. Um, and in the book, Eichler, what is the book name? Uh, Gödel Escherbach. Ah, good. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Did you read it? Uh, yes, we, we have a copy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, his father was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize 61, I think. I think nuclear physics. Yeah. Nuclear matter. Yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe so. Maybe right. so. So, so he was heavily influenced, of course, from his father. I mean, Dog, Douglas yes. Hofstadt. But he yes. he's a cognition scientist today. Well, there's a very rich subject. Yeah, yeah. There are many subjects. Certainly. Um, but going back to physics, I mean, as I understand it, uh, I mean, I'm not a physicist, but I understand that quantum theory is difficult to, to make compatible with Gravitation and relativity, yes, right? Yes, yes. Do you think we will manage to get them together? Well, you, you know, never say never. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> through the history of natural science, we've said, well, I'll never understand this. Yeah, Yet yeah. Time and again, we've made advances. There surely are limits. Mm. Just as we can never visit another planet and see what's happening there, mm. there have got to be deep mysteries that we'll never understand, we, yeah. the human race. Yeah. But uh, there's no guarantees uh, either way. Um, it is fascinating that quantum mechanics and relativity, the two, two great principles of physics, relativity, quantum, 
so are so difficult to bring together. Mm. I mentioned the simple example, the dimensional dimensional analysis that gives you a mass density is absurd Mm -hmm. from gravity and quantum physics. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, my guess is there'll be a way. That's only wishful thinking, of course, or hopeful thinking. Which of the two theories do you think has to be changed the most, relativity or quantum physics? No idea. No idea. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You mustn't change either one, of course, very much. Uh. They both are wonderfully successful. Mm. It means they're a good approximation to, shall we say, reality. Yeah. We we shouldn't hesitate to say reality, should we? No, I don't think so. Uh, So they're both very good approximations, but they're both approximations. So for sure, at least one will have to give some slight amount and maybe both. Mm. My guess is both. Mm. There'll be Mm. something in there. We had the great advertisement of superstring theory. It sounds so very promising. Mm -hmm. But you notice of late they've stopped boasting about how we will soon have a theory of everything. Uh, It's just turned out to be a complicated mess. Yeah. I'm thinking about the quantum physics. I mean, for many years there were this very popular interpretation that sort of our consciousness is affecting the the experiment. But as I understand it, people don't really say that anymore, right? Um, Physicists, I mean. uh, Entanglement is a wonderfully complicated thing. Yeah, yeah. But you and I, although we are entangled, are entangled in such a... You understand that entanglement can only be experimentally realized in spectacularly special, simple circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I know. You mm-hmm. and I are interacting in such a complicated way at the quantum level mm-hmm. that we don't... Uh, telepathy is not going to ever work. No, I agree with that. Uh, uh, that, that w- that's what I mean. I mean, quantum mechanics has been so misused by New uh, Age culture. Yes, uh, yes. And it is so deeply non-intuitive. Yeah. But at a level that you understand is not going to affect our everyday life. No, 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 no. I of see course, that. if you put money in the stock market for quantum computing, you may become very rich. <laughs> that could happen. That could happen. No, but I'm also thinking of the, the you know, the Schrodinger cat thing that uh, right. unt- until you look, uh, it's still in a superposition. But now physicists doesn't believe that it's related to consciousness, right? right? Well, no, of course not. And in no. fact... I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> there is no practical way you could place a cat and this pistol, this bomb, no. in a pure state. No. Uh, because they're interacting with all of us yeah. and, in fact, even the moon, the stars, through gravity. Uh, it means that they're in, in mixed states, which is to say the cat and the pistol are almost inevitably, I think, as a practical matter, you'll never get them into a pure state. They're always in a mixed state, which mm-hmm. is to say they're a good approximation to the notion of an actual macroscopic cat yeah, of the yeah. classical kind. Yeah, yeah. I think Schrodinger's cat has been heavily overplayed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, tell me, uh, now in just a week, you will uh, go to the Nobel banquet. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is it the first time you're in Stockholm? Oh, no. Uh, only in the summer. Mm-hmm. Conferences, tourism. So you have been here? Oh, yes. Okay. Through the years, quite a few times. Have you been out in the Swedish archipelago? Yes, I had one meeting up in the archipelago out in Muskeg country. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Uh, Baron. Barons. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a wonderful trip. Another nice thing about being a physicist is you get to go to conferences in, in interesting places. <laughs> Why do we have to go out into the barrens of northern Sweden to, to discuss physics? <laughs> yeah, that's we could do it in the airport lounge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, somehow we get to go to these fascinating places. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I'm not sure why, but I don't <laughs> question it. But that's um, nice. We had just two weeks ago. We had two of our other authors. Rebecca Goldstein and Steven Pinker was here. Oh, I know Pinker. And uh, we, we made an event here in Stockholm. But they, they actually went up to the most northern part of Sweden uh, the day after to see the northern light, oh. you know, on the, yes, on the sky. Yes, yeah. uh, and they sent me some photos. It looked beautiful. It's a remarkable phenomenon. Yeah. Have you, you seen un- it? Oh, yeah. well, you understand that the north magnetic pole is over Canada. So in Manitoba, we're near the auroral zone, so we get a fair amount of it. Okay. So I certainly remember as a youth walking home and uh, the lights dancing in the sky. Wow. Maybe yeah. that inspired you to be interested in... No? No? <laughs> no? I was oblivious as a kid. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> what were your big interests before physics as a kid? Oh, playing, square yeah. dancing, skiing. <laughs> okay. Skiing? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, that's nice. It's a little odd because uh, I grew up in the prairie, oh. dead flat land, but deep river valleys. Mm-hmm. And we would ski in the river valleys. Wow. That's wonderful. A lot of snow then. No. It's a semi, semi-arid country. So not much snow, bitter cold, okay. and not much elevation difference between top and bottom. So where do you, where do you live now? Uh, in, in New Jersey, mm-hmm. USA, the town of Princeton. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you have kids? We have three daughters, one dad, alas, of, of alcoholism. Oh, such a What that. a horrible thing that is. So we had a, a nightmare of a, of a decade. Mm, terrible. The usual treatment centers, therapy, mm. this and that. But more and more, she would... On the advice of my wife, we have decided, you know, you talk to a friend and they will... You mentioned alcoholism, and you'll find, well, they have an uncle, they have a cousin. Mm. Who's, it's very common. It's very common. It's much more common than we realize. Mm. And so we've decided uh, we will speak out about it. That's good. So when the opportunity arises, I just speak up. Mm. Death of alcoholism, this bright, very intelligent, charming, interactive people. Mm. Ellen was such a beauty uh, in her intellect, her charm, her social... Sociability. Could she ever explain why it's no, happened? No, no. Maybe uh, it's biological in a sense. Uh, it could some. well be that there's some sort of drive to, mm. for alcohol. Mm. She acted that way. She, she would get antsy and uh, unable to resist the impulse to sneak out and get some, some vodka. Yeah, yeah. And it just got worse and worse. She dearly loved their two, two boys doted on them, mm. yet she put them through the ringer like showing up drunk. Mm. Mm. How do you explain that? Mm. Well, you can't. Anyway, we grieve, but... Uh, of course. We grieve. Of course. So we had three girls. Each of them have two children, so we have six grandchildren. Mm. Mm. All fascinating, you know. 
something I've been convinced about. People are born with personalities. Mm. You all have noticed it with your boy. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes, quite distinct from an early age. And uh, so there are, there are six very different people, which is totally charming. Yes, that's wonderful. How, how old are your grandchildren? Oh, they range from college age to uh, mid-30s. Yeah, yeah. And your two other daughters, what are they doing? So uh, our oldest daughter, Leslie, uh, works for Oracle, mm-hmm. that big, massive conglomerate. Computers, yeah, she lives in western Massachusetts in the town of Northampton. Mm. She works by computer. Mm. She, she, of course, visits corporate headquarters occasionally, but day-to-day and week-to-week, she just goes up to her office and sits at the computer mm. and does all sorts of things that normally you would have traveled to do in an office. Mm. <coughs> so she's well set up. Um, they love the town. That, that's great. Mm. And their children are not too far away in eastern Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Marion um, is a CPA, chartered Chartered public accountant, that's it. Mm. She looks at taxes and such things for mm. people. She loves numbers. So uh, uh, it was not long ago we were reviewing some of their old papers from when they were children, and we discovered that Marion, one year, kept a record of what she wore to school every day. <laughs> that's interesting. A CPA. She loves numbers. Yes. She loves records. and uh, so. A CPA was born, and that is her job. Her husband uh, has another, has a job booking freighters, booking uh, trucks that Mm. haul freight around. They live in uh, Boise, Idaho. That's a state that is largely national parks and and wildlife refuges. Mm. Beautiful state, uh, lots of outdoor activities, so they love it there. And your wife, what has she been doing? Allison. Much smarter than me in many ways. <laughs> she understands words. Mm. Um, she has had many jobs. Um, at the moment, she volunteers at the local senior resource center. Mm. Wonderful. She is a senior, but mm. she volunteers there yeah, yeah, to that's help wonderful. other seniors. That's wonderful. I must ask you finally, um, I mean, it's very dramatic in America these days politically. Uh, it's horrid. Yes, I, I can imagine that that's how it must feel when you live there. But I mean, now this impeachment discussion. Do you think that? Do you think he will? <laughs> do you think he will uh, win the next election if he if it's not impeached? I wish I knew. Mm. I would rather think about quantum mechanics and relativity. <laughs> but still, no. In fact, we have taken to looking at the new evening news on television with mm. shock. Yeah. But we keep watching it. Yeah. Doug Hofstadter tells me that he wants to emigrate from the I country. know. You know, we are Canadians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there's always a possibility of a quick retreat. On. It will not come to that. Um, I just do not understand why so many people seem not to realize what an asshole the, <laughs> the president is. Yeah, yeah. And such an abs- you can never tell when he's telling. He doesn't know that he doesn't have the notion of truth. No, exactly. Can you imagine a leader of a major country who just doesn't speak with truth? No, it's weird. It's so weird. But but the, even more weird is that it seems to happen 
all over the world in there many seems places. There to be an, a contagion, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, like Hungary, Poland, yeah. you know, the Hindu nationalists in India. Didn't they notice the Second World War? Exactly. Didn't they notice what happened? Yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. It's very I, weird. I do not understand. There is some kind of trend going all over the world right now, and I, I wonder why. I do too. I Let's do just too. hope that we will get back the enlightenment values. <laughs> An enlightenment. Yes. I don't know how that's done. We'll see. Professor Peebles, thank you so much for being in this podcast. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.